Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I have this vague memory of a Daily Show segment from about 15 years ago. The Daily Show is this satirical news show, And they sent a fake reporter to this small town in Texas that had just named itself Dish, as in Dish Satellite Television. Tonight, Ed Helms visits one struggling community rescued by an unlikely savior. What could a town possibly need that satellite TV can't provide? Okay, a a school system. The Learning Channel. Police Department. America's Most Wanted. Apparently, by renaming itself Dish, this town had scored free TV for its residents for a decade. Now, I can imagine why a company would want a town to rename itself in the company's image, but what kind of town would do this? And I can't think of a better person to answer this question than reporter Sally Herships. Welcome. Hi. All right. So first of all, what happened here? Well, This all started in a brainstorming meeting at Dish Network back around 2005. Michael Newman was Dish's president back then. And he told me the company was trying to think of marketing ideas. He doesn't remember who came up with it. He thinks it was someone pretty junior just tossing ideas out. One of which was uh, uh, the idea to name a town in the United States, Dish. And the room went silent (laughs) because it was a little far-fetched. Um, and, and it actually raised more questions than it answered for us about the doability of it. What are the implications for naming? How much naming really has to change? Would the town have to go and change all of its signage? Would a town have to change its letterhead, business cards? This could get expensive. But Michael says the company figured it out. They issued a press release saying it was looking for a town to change its name. And it was a win. The story got picked up on all the major networks, the talk shows... It went global. It was in the Jerusalem Post. It was on the BBC. I mean, Jay Leno talked about it in his monologue on, uh, that night. There was almost no place that it didn't go. After all the buzz dies down, the company hears from a lot of towns that are interested in changing their names to Dish in order to get free TV. But one by one, they fall away. Their town councils can't agree or their lawyers are worried. They don't want to be sued by a business owner who's worried about changing his name from Greenville Dry Cleaners to Dish Dry Cleaners. I used to joke when asked about it uh, by reporters. I, I would say something like, well, we're talking to Miami, but they think it might cost too much. And Memphis spoke up. But, you know, of course, none of that really happened. It was just all in fun. 
Finally, it's down to just a couple of spots. One of them, a small town north of Fort Worth named Clark, Texas. So is this it? Clark just changes its name to Dish and gets to watch a lot of free TV? Yeah, that all happened. But the reason it happened was not just about the free TV. It was more like the plot of a TV show. There was small town politics, big Texas landscapes, money and power and grudges and feuds and disputed elections and huge drama. In a world where one town changes its name to get free TV. From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. Today, a town called Dish. It's the story of a battle between money and legacy for Dish the company and Dish the town. So we sent reporter Sally Herships to Texas to find out what really happened. Plus, it's our last episode of the season, so we'll see who's calling on our customer service line. Wow, those lines look busy. Stay with us. The town of Dish is about an hour's drive outside Dallas. There's an entrance from Route 156 right across the highway from some freight train tracks. That's where producer Rebecca Moore and I pull over. So we have just pulled into Dish, Texas, and what did we see? Uh, there was a bronze sign right at the edge of a really small uh, two-lane road. There's not even a line down the middle of it. Um, there's some cows over here on the side of the road in a big pasture. Cows! Oh my god, cows! <laughs> um, some residential houses. The town is tiny. Really, really tiny. Edge of it. So we just drove from the entrance to the exit. I should take a picture. Hold on one second. Let me put down this window. That was the, that's it, that's Dish. That was about, what, three minutes, three minute drive? It takes three minutes to drive from one end of town to the other. According to a census estimate from last year, 437 people live in Dish now. There's not a lot going on here. There's no barber shop, no grocery store, no restaurant. If you want to eat out, you have to go to the next town over. It's open and flat and quiet. You can hear insects buzzing, and there's all this green waving grass. The biggest sensation you feel is car tires on dirt. Bill Sisko is the mayor here, and he is a pretty nifty email writer. Here he is responding to me when I happen to mention that, as a New Yorker, I don't drive. Okay. Okay, these are just common questions that a Texan would ask a New Yorker. Have you ever shot a gun? Have you ever ridden a horse? Have you ever climbed a mountain? Have you ever swam in the ocean? Have you ever had a great steak? Oh, wait, yes, I have ridden a horse. Oh, excellent. Bill is 64. He's got five kids. He wears slip-on loafers with socks, drives a red Corvette ZR1. He's lived in Dish for 32 years, and he's been mayor for eight. He's really concerned with being a good host. I'm not beating you up here. I'm just asking questions. I don't want you to have too much of a culture shock. And it's because we want you to experience life here and the culture and and know that, uh, yes, it's what people do here. 
And have you met have you met some people from the Northeast who haven't done those things? Is that oh, sort yes. of many, many people? Yes. So Bill really wants to cast his town in a positive light. So you're, so. so you're trying to sort of assess, like, what have they experienced? Yes, what have they experienced? Because life is for living. And this is the land of opportunity here. Dish or Texas? Both. Dish and Texas. No state income tax for corporations or individuals. No state income tax for corporations or individuals. And it's all that space and personal freedom to avoid state income taxes. That is what Bill is trying to get across. It's why he says people move here. We met at Town Hall. It's a one-story building. There's a basketball court and a small playground outside. And while Bill and I are standing in the parking lot, his friend and colleague stops by. Charles Smith, my pleasure. His friend Charles is a past town commissioner, and both he and Bill care a lot about the town of Dish. They want to make sure outsiders get Dish right. So they're a mix of really generous hospitality with a little skepticism about reporters from the big city thrown in. So what were you asking? My question was, Ben, you're a New Yorker, and a lot of New Yorkers, as I'm well aware of, and I'm sure you are too, are anti-gun, firearm in general. Have you ever fired a gun? I have never fired a gun. Have you not? Well, I'll give you any opportunity you want to fire a gun because I have numerous guns. <clears throat> And if you should elect to do so, I can accommodate you. Right now? It'd be shortly. I live one mile from here. <laughs> Does it make a loud noise? Oh well, yeah, it's noisy. Depending on what kind of gun you're going to fire or want to fire. Do you have a quiet gun? <laughs> I just have to say, Sally, the story really does sound like it has all the trappings of an American TV drama. Like, I can imagine the scene. Big land, money and power at stake, interesting characters. But I haven't heard anyone talk yet about the free dish TV. Yeah, you are correct. And that is because there is so much drama about the deal for the name change that Bill, the mayor, doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, the clown car left this town years ago. But that is not exactly accurate, because the man who founded the town, he's still here in Dish. So before this town was Dish, the town had another name, Clark. Right, before they changed their name in exchange for America's top 60 programming package for 10 years, free standard installation, and a free digital video recorder satellite TV receiver, Sally? Yeah, that was all just a really convenient way for one of the residents in the small town to get revenge on another. Intrigue. (laughs) There are two sides of the battle. On one, we have the founder of the town, L.E. Clark. Ellie still lives and works in Dish. His office is right next door to his house. It's right off of a tiny airstrip, which he owns. He operates Clark's aircraft and RV sales. There's this big flagpole outside with an American flag flapping in the wind. Wow, the wind sure whistles here. Inside Ellie's office, he has a white folding table with a Costco-sized clear plastic jar of bright orange cheese balls, a Ronald Reagan calendar, a roll of toilet paper with Obama's face printed on it on his desk, and the skin of a rattlesnake on his wall. Oh, that's a six-foot rattlesnake. That uh, I stomped on that 
guy with my heel of my boot and killed him and then dressed him out and we ate him and uh, tanned the skin. Here's how Ellie Clark says the town got its start and its first name. So remember, the town is about 45 minutes north of Fort Worth. But back in the late 90s, Fort Worth was growing and it was threatening to swallow up the area, which was an unincorporated part of the county. But being sucked up into Fort Worth, a comparatively big metropolis, would have meant higher taxes. And Fort Worth, it was coming. They got within one mile of the end of my runway. And that's what made me nervous. I said, man, I don't want to be in Fort Worth City limits. And nobody out here did. And I said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, the only thing I know you can do is get busy in an incorporated town. So Ellie gets busy. He checks in with his neighbors. They were all in. So he forms a committee of one and he founds a town. And when all the paperwork was submitted to the county, a clerk asked him, hey, so what's the name of your new town? I said, well, I hadn't even thought about a name for it because I was just busy trying to get everything listed as a town to satisfy you all. But he said, we got to have a name. And my wife was sitting there, and she said, well, you've done all the work, you've spent all the money, why don't you just name it Clark? So L.E. Clark names the town after himself, Clark, Texas. He says it was just this snap decision while he was filing paperwork. And then how did it feel to have a town with your name? Well, it made me feel safe that Fort Worth wasn't going to get us. And that was the whole reason I did it. Ellie has two enormous RVs, one of which is called the Intrigue by Country Coach. He keeps them in his airplane hangar. Next to them, a red pickup truck. We climbed in so that he could play tour guide and show me around Dish. I'm sorry, I should have come around there and opened the door for no, you. No, no, this is, this, you're my chauffeur. This is already a big, this is great. Thank you. He keeps red and white striped peppermints in his cup holder. We better strap up, we're going to drive. Airplanes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Are we on the runway? Yeah. We're on the runway. You want to take off? (laughs) Whoa! Oh my god. (laughs) So as we're driving along this runway, on one side are these beautiful wildflowers, and on the other side is there are sleeping cows and housing developments. Ellie says the same kind of thing that Bill said. The people who live in this town want space, but also those low taxes. And they don't want to get sucked up by another community, not even the next town over, Ponder. What about becoming part of Ponder? No, we didn't want to become part of anybody. We want to be left alone. The town is about one and a half miles from top to bottom, which is incredibly tiny, but also feels kind of big with all the fields and cows and open land, but definitely not big enough to keep L.E. away from his enemies. What's Longhorn Meadows? That's owned by Mitch Merritt. He's the guy that's the problem, been the problem since day one. Coming up, the problem. It's Ellie Clark versus the merits. Stay with us.
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. So we just met Ellie Clark, one side of the battle that led to the name change to Dish. Now, the other side, the Merritts. Who are the Merritts, Sally? So Mitch Merritt is this big-time property owner in the area. His family owned a trailer park in Dish. A big chunk of the town's residents live there. He also has a son named Bill, a high-powered lawyer who lives in Dallas. And Bill Merritt is going to be key here. Here he is at a county meeting. Morning. Thank you all for having me very much. Um, it's kind of a big deal. As you can see, I brought the whole family in tow, so... <laughs> Uh, Any rate, just again, thank you for having me. This is a a fantastic time for... So the town is named after Ellie Clark. Ellie was also its first mayor. But the Merritts wanted something. They'd helped Ellie form this town, and now they wanted a zoning change that would benefit them. The Merritts owned a trailer park, and they wanted to fit more trailers in their park. But Ellie Clark, as mayor, wouldn't approve it. He says the trailer park was practically in his backyard. He claims there was always a stabbing, sheriffs, sirens, something. And he didn't want more trouble so close to home. We really wanted to talk to Bill Merritt, but he declined our request for an interview multiple times. After our last phone call to his office, his receptionist wrote in an email, as these matters occurred approximately 15 years ago, Mr. Merritt has no comment. So instead, I talked to Calvin Tillman. He is going to be our tour guide here. He was a resident in the town at the time. He saw this whole thing unfold. And later, he becomes the third mayor of the town of Dish. How many mayors are in this town that has such a short history? There are a lot of mayors. It's complicated. Luckily, we have Calvin as an eyewitness. He says after Ellie nixed the trailer park expansion, the merits got sneaky. If you submit a zoning change and no one responds within 31 days, it automatically gets approved. So the merits submit their proposal one night after a town council meeting, knowing it would be 32 days until the next. But Ellie found out and he put a stop to it. Then a lawsuit ensued. So the the merits sued the town. Yeah, they sued the town. And this is within the first six months of the town forming. The merits didn't get their expansion. And ever since, Calvin says, there has been bad blood, a grudge between L.E. and the Merritt family. I I described this one time as they hated one another more than I'm capable of hating. You have to remember, the town at the time is only six months old. There's no police force. So one of the first things that L.E. does and that he says he's really proud of when he first founds the town was to find a police chief and a judge to work for practically nothing, like a token dollar a year. 
And believe it or not, this small municipal decision, it ends up fanning the flames of the fight between the two families even more and laying the groundwork for how the town's name ultimately gets changed not too long after. All of a sudden, there is a guy in an old red pickup truck that has flashing lights on the top of it that's a police officer, and he's the Clark police chief. Calvin says that Ellie Clark was using his new hire, the police chief, to harass the Merritt family. And then he hired a judge who had very limited qualifications to be a judge. And it's true. We checked. In Texas, you actually don't have to have a law degree to be a judge in some municipalities or even in some county courts. And Calvin's take was that soon the town found itself with a mayor, a police chief, and a judge who were basically beer-drinking buddies. And he says this was not popular with the other residents of the town either. That could be a problem for someone. You know, one of Bill's kids gets pulled over. Uh, They come to the kangaroo court. Now they've got some sort of criminal charge trumped up against them. Did anything like that happen? He, Clark was definitely trying to use the authority and the power of the town to go after Merritt. Okay, so the town is just a few years old. Tensions are running high. Some of the residents are unhappy, right? And the Merritts, I assume, are also still unhappy? Yeah, and so when Ellie Clark is up for re-election in the spring of 2005, who decides to run against him? None other than Bill Merritt. Wow. Yeah. So the election is between the town's founder and this young hotshot lawyer who's just moved home from Dallas. Uh, Mr. Merritt uh, worked on George W. Bush's first uh, gubernatorial campaign in 1994. He graduates college in just three years. After Mr. Bush was elected governor, Bill was asked to be intern on Governor Bush's policy staff. Bill Merritt goes on to practice law at the second largest firm in the world. So election day rolls around, the votes get counted, and Bill Merritt wins by just one vote. And this is where things come to a boil yet again between Ellie Clark and the Merritts. L.E. accuses Bill Merritt of stealing the election by bringing in voters who he says do not live in the town. He owned a trailer park over here. And he rented them to Mexican families, which he controlled. He, he got them registered to vote, then hauled them by the pickup load to the town hall for the election and held up a ballot and showed them where to make their X. And you saw this happening? Saw this. You saw this with your own eyes? I saw this with my own eyes. At the time, Ellie Clark is so angry that he sues. The district court judge who hears the case ends up throwing out four votes, two on each side, cast by people who don't live in Dish. So Merritt holds on to his win. When Merritt comes in to take over the town, L.E. takes the flagpole from in front of town hall with him. I gathered up my stuff, and the flagpole was one of the things that I took. And... uh, what was funny, the other thing I took was the recorder that he was using. That was my recorder. So I said, here, take your tape out. I'm taking my recorder. So I did. A cassette recorder. Yes. Wait, I'm still thinking about this. So he just took the flagpole with him? Yeah, it was a contentious election. According to official town minutes from June 2005, the town pays $120.70 to change the locks on town hall. 
Then, just a few months after Merritt takes office, Dish Network announces its contest. One of the residents sees it, she brings it to the town, and suggests they go for it. And this is when the big name change occurs. Clark, Texas, becomes Dish. Calvin Tillman again. So then did Merritt do the Dish Network thing just to get back at him, or was he, he did. He did. He absolutely did. Calvin says that Ellie Clark, the guy who founded the town and named it after himself, he is not happy about the change. Did Merritt succeed in getting at Mr. Clark? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it did. You know, our meetings back in those days, were, especially when I took over as mayor, they were quite, quite uh, uh, animated sometimes, especially when Ellie and some of his friends would show up at the meetings. But, you know, his friends would even goad him with, you know, he took your name off the town and, you know, he changed the name of the town. And, <laughs> and so Ellie, you could tell that it would, it would burn him up. But is this what Dish, the satellite TV company, had in mind when it came up with the promotion? That's next. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with Sally Herships. Trying to figure out who is telling the truth here, Dan, that is really tough. Emotions were clearly running high. This all happened years ago, and I was only in town for a couple of days. So to fact check, to find out the truth, who was right and who was wrong, I called Dave Moore. He was a local reporter who covered the story of the name change of the town back in 2005 for the Denton Record Chronicle. What there was so when I was talking to people, there was so much finger pointing. Yeah, like what what actually happened? Well, you and me both, because I went down there hoping to get a quick little scoop. Like, you know, you, you think it'd be a really cute little story about some town that named itself after a company so they could get free stuff. But Moore says that is not what he found. It was such a contentious issue. And I never did get to the bottom exactly of, like, what, what did Clark do? <laughs> what was it, you know? And, and you promised you'd tell me, so you have to tell me now. When Dave was covering the story, he says Ellie would just hang up on him if he called. Bill Merritt wouldn't talk to me, and Ellie Clark wouldn't talk to him. And Dave says, yes, L.E. was really unpopular with most of the town's residents. They, they just thought he was a nasty guy. They thought he was a mean old man. And Why? Why? I mean, he's pretty nasty to me. <laughs> I covered small towns for like 20 years, and... Invariably, it's like 
the one side is always trying to claim the other side's a bad guy and you know it's just it's never you know it's never that cut and dried and that community just seemed very polarized so I'm going to assume here, Sally, that this is not at all what Dish, the company, had in mind when no. it selected a small <laughs> town in Texas? Not to... at all. <laughs> Remember Michael Newman, who was president of Dish at the time when it first came up with the idea? Did you ever anticipate that this contest would be used as sort of a weapon between these two guys to settle, <laughs> to settle a feud? No, I don't think I could have possibly anticipated that. Michael hasn't worked at Dish, the company, in years. But even when he did all those years ago, he says finding out about the feud was a surprise, but also not that big of a deal. I mean, from our perspective, uh, you can't please all of the people all of the time, but you can sure please most of the residents of the town uh, if you give them free TV service for 10 years. And I think we achieved that. Michael was quoted at the time as making some big claims about what changing the name of the town to Dish would mean for the residents. You're quoted as saying that you believe the town's residents would be evangelists for satellite TV and that the name change was a great spiritual fit and it would make the town the company's galactic headquarters. Does that (laughs) ring a bell? I I seem to recall something about galactic headquarters. And uh, I don't know that it became our galactic headquarters, but uh, because we were pretty, we were pretty heavily invested in Denver at the time. And, but I think spiritually, it, uh, it was kind of fun to think of, uh, to think of uh, having a town named after the company. Um, and it became, uh, I suppose, our spiritual headquarters. And, and as far as the people becoming evangelists for, uh, for TV, I think anyone that gets something for free is automatically a little bit positive about the experience. So I'm, I'm sure it didn't hurt. When we visited Dish, Rebecca Moore, the producer who came with me, spent an entire day trying to talk to residents to find out how they felt. But most of the people she spoke with either didn't remember or didn't care or both. When I asked the company Dish how it felt about its name being caught up in a feud between two families, it declined to answer. When the town of Clark agreed to take its new name, Dish, on November 15, 2005, it set into motion a series of changes. The official town letterhead and seal were updated. Residents' addresses would now say Dish instead of Clark. And the town's signs changed. And it's those street signs in brown and green at either end of the town that used to read Clark but now say Dish that really eat at the guy who founded the town, L.E. Clark. And I've always said, and I'm 85 years old, and i always said I don't want to die in the town of Dish. You know. I want the town of Clark signs back up. Ellie says, according to the terms of the deal, the name of the town was only supposed to be changed for 10 years, that the change was temporary. So I checked with the current mayor, Bill Sisko. Mr. Mayor? The name of the town is Dish, Texas. Ultimately, Dish, the company got a lot of free publicity. And still is, because you and I are talking about them right now. (laughs) This is true. I think we can agree. The company here is clearly a winner. But I don't think either of the small-town, big-time politicians are. I mean, Merritt got his name changed, so that seems pretty good for him. And it's no longer called Clark. Yeah, but Merritt doesn't come out looking so good. And Ellie Clark, his name got taken off the town. Although... Dan, he did come out with one thing. What's that? Free TV. Wait, wait, wait. wait. 
Wait, so Ellie Clark, the guy who says he wants to die in Clark, Texas, not Dish, Texas, the guy whose name was on this town, even after all that, he still took the free TV? I mean, yeah. What would you do? I mean, I do like a deal. (laughs) Reporter Sally Herships, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. This is a little Smith & Wesson 22, probably one of the safest guns there is out there. Okay. And the least noise maker. What kind of bullets are those? Those are earplugs. These are earplugs, yeah. Well, I have shot a gun. You have fired a gun. There we go. It was loud. (laughs) I feel like this is when people come to New York and they've never had sushi. I've never tried sushi. Well, it's our last episode of the season. We're going to take some time off after this week. But before we go, we thought we would check in on our customer service call center and see what's happening on the phones. Thank you for calling customer service, where we answer all your burning questions about brands. This call may be recorded for podcast purposes. All right, so we are in the customer service center here. I see it's busy on the lines. We have lots of callers waiting and a whole crew of brand experts standing by. Who is this? I see Sarah Wyman is here. Hello. Amy Padula. Hey. And Jenny Siegel. Hi. So let me put a headset on and see who's on the line. Hi, this is Rory. Where are you calling from? Bay Area. You have a question for us, right? Yes. Uh, So... I was interested in how Michelin tires ended up doing a Michelin guide on the Michelin stars that they give to restaurants. So, okay, so you're wondering, like, why a tire company, of all things, became the number one source of uh, determining what's a good restaurant? Exactly. Well, I have no idea, but I think I know someone who can help. Hey, Roy, how are you doing? Excellent. How are you? Good. So, great question. And I have some answers for you, and it starts with a story. So, in 1900, these two guys, Edouard and André Michelin, were in the tire-making business in France. Edouard and André Michelin. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Sarah's been practicing. Yes. (laughs) Um, And there was one big problem in their early business venture, which was that there weren't that many cars in France at the time, or anywhere, really, because it was only... 1900. So to increase the demand for cars, the brothers published their first Michelin guide. And it was basically like an early Rick Steves for car things. The Michelin guide at the time included maps, instructions on how to repair and change tires, lists of hotels, mechanics, and like gas stations in the area. And it was billed as, quote, a small guide to improve mobility. But yeah, so if you as an early car owner in France decide to hop in your car, you have like all the resources you need to have a good time and stay safe in a little packet. Yes. So that's where it starts. Um, And they had pretty good success with this. 35,000 copies were printed and given away for free. 
They also created a bureau within their offices in Paris, the Bureau of Itineraries, which would, quote, provide motorists with a travel plan free of charge on simple demand. So it was basically like Google Maps before Google Maps happened. So here's where the big change happens, though. In 1920, Andre Michelin was visiting a tire merchant and discovered that copies of the Michelin Guide were propping up a workbench, like up on itself. So like a shim? Exactly. Wait, what is a shim? It's <laughs> that thing, you know, like when you're at a restaurant and the table's wobbly and they come over and they stick the little thing. Stick like, like a card oh, under yeah, like it. a napkin yeah. or, you know, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a Michelin Guide, hypothetically. Yeah. Exactly. So their like beloved popular guide was just like holding up this workbench. It was a Michelin shim. <laughs> so how did he feel um, seeing this? Well. Legend has it that he says in this moment, quote, man only truly respects what he pays for. And he starts to charge for the Michelin guide. <laughs> so basically he's like, I gave you guys all this like awesome, very free thing and nobody's appreciating it. So fun's over. It costs money now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so to address your question, how did they suddenly become involved with restaurant reviews? So as the guy became more popular and he charged for it. In the restaurant section in particular, the Michelin started hiring a team of inspectors to visit and review restaurants anonymously. So later on in 1926, they started awarding stars to the restaurants as a ranking system. And by 1936, they had criteria for the three-star ranking system that they still use today. Definitely wouldn't have thought it um, initially, but it definitely seems to make sense. You know, a great way to kind of encourage people to start going out and driving a lot more and generate business for uh, their tires. Do you find yourself taking long journeys to go to restaurants? <laughs> uh, not, not too long. <laughs> well, there's one last thing I learned in researching this story. When World War II rolled around, they stalled production on the guide, but a different version of the guide was actually published for military use during the war. And the fleet, which landed at Normandy on D-Day, carried copies of the 1939 edition of the guide, which was the last one printed before the war. And what's so interesting about this version is that it was the most up-to-date map of France available at the time. All right. Well, are you satisfied with the customer service you got today? Yes, I am. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Thanks. So a couple of months ago, we got an email from a listener named Pat who had listened to our KFC episode, which also featured Sally Herships. That was the episode about how Kentucky Fried Chicken became a Christmas tradition in Japan. And then Pat emailed us to share her own funny story about KFC. But we have some updates. So first of all, Pat is on the line. So Pat, hello. Hello, everyone. Hi. Where are you calling from? I'm actually in New Jersey. Okay, so if you could remind us, what is your KFC story? We were on our honeymoon 27 years ago in St. Martin, and we had rented a car for the day because we wanted to do the French beaches. That's really the biggest thing. And at the end of the day, like my husband, who loves wings and things like that, was like, let's go to KFC before we go back to the hotel. And we see the KFC, we get in line, literally in line that was around the block everybody is out of their cars having a party waiting to get their stuff at the takeout window what do we see walking underneath all the cars were all these brown chickens (laughs) and we're going that's why it takes so long they got to catch them first were they online too Uh, they were not the chicken. We were online. The chickens were not online. They were just walking. Along. We figured they belonged to locals. You know, uh-huh. They, they probably don't like KFC. I would imagine not. 
would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not so. their target audience. Oh, no. So we had another listener who contacted us, and he says he has an explanation for this. Saul, are you there? Yep, I'm right here. Hi, Saul. So where are you calling from? I'm calling in from Reno, Nevada. All right. So you wrote in to us because you have been there and you think you have the answer to this, right? Yep. I actually, I lived in the Caribbean for almost six years and I actually used to frequent St. Martin, I'd say maybe two or three times a year and I'd be there for about two or three weeks. So I've actually been to the KFC that she's, that Pat's talking about. That's amazing. <laughs> what are the odds? Seriously. <laughs> Hi, Saul, Slim by on. the way. <laughs> Hi, Pat. Hi. <laughs> All right, so we have everyone on the phone here. Saul, what is the answer? Why are there so many chickens outside of KFC in St. Martin? Well, the truth is that there are chickens outside everywhere in all of the Caribbean islands. Uh, these are what we call locally, we call them dumpster chickens. They don't really belong to anyone. They're just roaming around. They're kind of like like squirrels. Uh, and the, the reason why we call them dumpster chickens it's because they basically eat anything out of the dumpster. So, oh, great. Great. Um, so th- likely they were hanging around KFC because they probably saw the people there and they figured there's probably going to be food waste. So they go and they eat all of that. Some locals do eat the chickens, but before they eat them, they have to feed them corn for like one or two weeks to kind of flush out any bad stuff. And then they'll cook it. But that's another story, I'm sure. They have to get all that lard out of them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do we have any evidence that that, that, that KFC ever served a dumpster chicken? Uh, uh, wow, that's, that's uh, probably oh just local urban legends. Who <laughs> you would never know. So in conclusion, the chickens are smart enough to know where the food is, but not smart enough to avoid the KFC. <laughs> oh, my exactly. God. Exactly. I figured they were local, but I thought they'd be owned by someone, not knowing they are dumpster divers themselves of themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're they're not really owned by anyone. They're they're just everywhere. God, perfect. Well, well, that's great. <laughs> listeners helping listeners. I love it. Pat Saul, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for calling customer service. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to be here. And I agree. Indeed, it was my distinct pleasure. And I loved it. Loved it. Thank <laughs> you so much. A real you, joy to have you. both of you on. Thank you. Yeah. Bye now. Bye bye. Well, I think we have time for one more call. Let's see who's on the line. Hey, Stevie, thanks for calling. Sarah Wyman, producer of Household Name. Dan Bobcock, host of Household Name. <laughs> Amy Padulis, Kitty. This is, this, is, this is amazing. <laughs> the whole crew is here. Stevie is a friend of mine and Jenny's. She used to live here in New York City, but now lives in London. So, Stevie, what's your question? So, last time I was flying out the airport from visiting you guys in New York, I went to the candy kiosk and I saw Sour Patch Kids. And I just wondered... Who named them that? Who wanted to eat a kid as their sweet? Why not make them any other shape? This is a great question. So Jenny and I called up the Indiana Jones of candy. <gasps> That's a job I want. <laughs> I I'm Jason Liebig. A confectionery historian and collector. He runs a blog called CollectingCandy.com. And I go out and try to find the stories that are lost to history and bring light to them. 
So Sour Patch Kids were originally called Marsmen, um, and they were created in the 1970s to capitalize on the big hoopla around space. Yeah, space was the thing in the 70s. Everybody, everybody was doing space. But so in 1985, the candy was actually bought up by a new company, Cadbury and Malico. And so it's at that point, around 1985, that the name is changed to Sour Patch Kids. And this was probably to capitalize on the popularity of Cabbage Patch Kids, those dolls that were really popular in the 80s and into the early 90s. Very popular, Um. super popular. They were so ugly. (laughs) (laughs) But so super conveniently for Cadbury and Malico, they didn't have to change the shape of their candy, right? Because they were they were just these kind of weird blob shapes. And so Space Alien, Mars Man, translated extremely well to human child without any like confectionery noodling around. Do you know what Sour Patch Kids are called in France? No. It's my favorite thing. They're called Very Bad Kids. <laughs> That's literally written on... In English. Yeah, written in English on the bag. Very bad kids. That's amazing. But this is not where our Sour Patch Kids story ends because we've discovered so much more excellent Sour Patch content, Stevie. Um, Like, apparently in England, they've released zombie-themed versions for Halloween. And um, my personal favorite, there have been decapitated Sour Patch Kids. Are you kidding? (laughs) They're called Sour Patch Kids Heads and Bodies. and so That's the name? That's the name. (laughs) Heads and Bodies. What kind of violent, morbid marketing department works for this company? (laughs) But so in the bag, it's like heads and bodies. Heads and bodies, knees and toes, knees and toes. It's incredibly morbid. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love all the craziest stuff. You know, the dead Sour Patch Kids, the zombie Sour Patch Kids, heads and bodies. I mean, come on. Um, But we should say these are not the first kid-shaped candies. No. One of the first baby-shaped candies was actually Jelly Babies, which I think you as a Brit will be familiar with. Oh, yeah. I grew up on those. And Jelly Babies, for our American listeners, they're shaped like like literal babies. Correct, Stevie? Yeah. They are really rather rather cute. They're very adorable. So, fun fact, when they were first sold in England by a confectionery called Victory, they were called unclaimed babies. Oh no, that's so sad. (laughs) You can still find old ads online that are advertising them. And yeah, I mean, it appears to be some sort of weird social commentary or allusion to the fact that in the mid-1800s, when this candy was popularized, there were a lot of orphaned and unclaimed babies in England being like left on people's doorsteps and like sent to orphanages. Wait, I just have to ask, like, why... Are we okay as a culture, as a society, with kid-shaped candies? And that's just considered totally normal. Am I the only person who finds this, like, completely disturbing? No, definitely not. I asked Jason Liebig, our candy historian, about this, and his answer was basically just that, like, kids are kind of weird. Well, I think I think kids love, you know, eating things. I mean, look, this goes back to Greek mythology. You know, ch- you know people were eating, children were eating their parents, parents were eating their children. Um, I think this is primal in, a, in our sort of storytelling and uh, in play. You know, we, uh, look, we, there's a reason why we like chocolate bunnies and not just chocolate blocks. You know, we, we, everybody bites the ears off the bunnies. So it's uh, so I think with kids or babies, I mean, it's just some goofy thing that, you know, that's part of, 
being silly and you get to, you know, look, I bit the head. It sounds terrible. <laughs> I bit the head off a baby. You know, it's like you have Barnum's animal crackers. It's like, oh, you know, I'm eating a, a rhinoceros or what have you. So I think it's uh, silly. And I suppose one could say it's a little edgy. All right, Stevie Hertz in London. Are you satisfied with the customer service you've received today? I am. I'm a little bit disgusted with humanity, but this has answered all my questions. <laughs> so we did our job. But <laughs> Bye. Bye, Stevie. Bye. All right. Well, that's our last caller for a little while. Good job in the call center, everyone. Thanks so much. That was fun. That, that was, was great. Good, so it's just one more thing we have to do. Cue the credits music. Remember to leave us a review and rating in Apple Podcasts. Get in touch. Email us at householdname at insider.com or on our Facebook group. I'm at Dan Bobkoff on Twitter. And while you wait for our new season, hopefully eagerly await our new season, you can keep up with us on our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. And this is our 36th episode. I can't believe that. In just 10 months, 36 episodes. So if you missed any of our previous episodes, they're all there in the show feed. You can go back and check those out. Our story on Dish Texas was reported and produced by Sally Herships and Jennifer Siegel with help from Rebecca Moore. The household name producing crew includes Sarah Wyman and Amy Padula and me. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. The executive producers are Chris Bannon and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Stitcher.